Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Double or Nothing. I'm Michael Frazis, and I'm here with Misha Saul, who uh, works in tech private equity. And sadly, we cannot talk about the most interesting things going on in his world um, because he's involved in a couple of takeover bids on the ASX. Um, so, Misha, how are you? <laughs> I'm very well. Thanks, Michael. I'm, I'm sorry. It sounds like you weren't in any of those uh, stocks that uh, that went up. Sadly not. Sadly not. No inside information here, unfortunately. <laughs> next time, next time. Um, so, well, I mean, the biggest news of the day, um, not so much in financial markets, is um, the passing of, of, of the Queen. Um, I, 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 I've, I've got, I've got like some, some thoughts. I don't know if you, if you have, if you have thoughts on, uh, on the Queen. No, I think um, my views have changed. Like as, as, as a kid, teenager, and like young adult, I was like a staunch Republican. Hmm. Then I spent a lot of time in England, and and now I kind of feel that anything that kind of ties two countries together is probably a good thing. You know, if you've got these bonds of history, and like if you've got any kind of like positive bonds at all, like best not to cut those. Um, if you can avoid it, even though obviously I can see the absurdity of, you know, having a royal family in another country um, that's hereditary and all kinds of problems. Um, but my view has always been glorious to kind of um, still have some kind of link. And wow, the Queen, what a what a story. What a kind of like life. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Look, I, I, she she's, um, you know, she seems to have uh, lived, um, you know, a very, stoic and dutiful um life and kind of given her, her heart to the to the to the british people and the other subjects of her um of her empire um you know, she is the queen or she was the queen of of australia um i've i've basically look the hereditary monarch thing you know it, it just doesn't make sense from first principles okay i'm i'm, I'm not a uh, you know the whole even Church of England thing, you know, no offense to, to, to Protestants, but like, you know, it's, it's a strange idea when you kind of uh, think about it. I, I think no offense again, you know, we all have our, our own strange views. Um, but, um, but I've actually been, I've always been a soft monarchist and, and I kind of remain. So I think, um, I think that the reasons, you know, even though it doesn't really make sense from first principles, it's just kind of worked. And I think, um, you know, I, I think often, um, uh, you know, so, so first of all, practically speaking, I think she was, she kind of was a barrier between, um, you know, where we are today and the kind of circling jackals in, in you know, e egomaniac jackals in Australia who kind of want to hijack the constitution and, uh, and, you know, the, the, the Republican cause. And, and I just think um, the system has worked really well in Australia and I'm loathe for um for you know a significant shift in in, in power, I'm, I'm very very cautious about what that that actually looks like and kind of if if it ain't broke um you know don't fix it. And then I think um you know systems often work with a strange, distant um you know um I I don't know how to articulate it, but, but but like some sort of new outside force, like um you know like for many communities um you know God um might be um. A, a useful um you know a, a useful device for for communal bonding or objectives or, or whatever um you know in, in math you know you, you might create an imaginary number you know a square root of a negative number um, and that actually yields surprisingly useful kind of real world um kind of um uh, results and so I, th I think the queen almost held a similar kind of um 
feature in the, in, in, in the Australian system. And I'm kind of loathe to kind of just get rid of this, um, this kind of, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't call it a figment, but like, you know, the, the, this kind of ab abstraction because it feels like it kind of works. So that's my really long-winded and inarticulate way of kind of expressing my uh, soft monarchism. I mean, it's an amazing analogy with imaginary numbers. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I think also Australians don't like people getting too big for themselves as well. I get the feeling like I was pretty young when the last kind of referendum happened, but I got the feeling people just didn't want to see, you know, certain people be effectively head of state of Australia, you know, and all the honors and kind of like, just kind of like, it's almost easier, seems distasteful for Australians, for anyone to get that. Yeah. Um, it's kind of easier if it's overseas and it's, 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 it's the queen. <laughs> it, it's, it's almost, it's almost like be... the, so it's, it's, it's almost like the sacrificial figure um, in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you know, obviously, um, you know, the kind of flip side where, um, you know, uh, Jesus kind of assumed all the sins, okay, and, and and so kind of that was a useful figure for the rest of society to to work. And the Old Testament, you literally had the goat on the date of a on day of atonement that would kind of assume the sins of of, of the community and be kind of left off a cliff, you know. And in a similar, it's almost way, Christian measure. <laughs> it's almost... Well, well, there's there's a there's a Christian and there's an Old Testament element. Absolutely, it's a, it's a very Christian yeah. idea. Um, but um, but you know the queen similarly plays a, a, a useful kind of symbolic uh, role. You know I think for 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 the Australian psyche where she can kind of assume all these ceremonial and kind of you know um, you know ancient kind of uh, ritual things. And, and in Australia we're run by dull potato heads, you know, who are like boring as anything. Um, and that's a feature, not a bug. You know, you'd rather them just kind of get on with the business of administration rather than, you know, have some pompous, you know, Australian um, president or something. I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic to that idea. Yeah. I mean, the dynamic I've always found interesting to how, um, if you can see it throughout history, how there's like the people, the nobility or the gentry or the upper class, and then the the monarch. And then there's always this dynamic where the people always love the monarch, hate the nobility. The nobility kind of like has to squeeze as much money as they can out of the peasantry or whoever they're <laughs> lording it over. But at the same time, they have a really tense relationship with the the monarch. There's like always there's this tension, like who has the most power, how's that split? Um, and obviously the closer they are to the monarch, the more power they can generally accrue. But at the same time, there is like an almost a natural alliance between the people and the monarch against yeah. the nobles. Um I always found that interesting. I don't know if there's, a, there's quite a modern analogy, but we shall see. We shall see how. Um, well, I, how I, I think I, I think it's like rock stars and stuff. Like I think you know people people love their um you know they love to idolize certain people and 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 if and if the the king or the queen can be that object um of celebrity and and um, idolization, mm -hmm. well then you know there is a sense of kind of loyalty and love. But you're right, it is it is it it, it feels like a juncture. Like it feels you know she's she's obviously been there for you know. 3x my lifespan um so so well you know but ever ever you know some my obviously for my entire living memory she's been a part of the kind of australian um political and institutional fabric and it is odd um that that she's gone yeah. and, and um, your parents and actually some of my grandparents as well <laughs> yeah yeah that's right Just the whole time um yeah why don't you want to while we're on topic celebrity not that that's going to be a feature of this podcast at all um what do you think of kim kardashian's new private equity play yeah, so um, so for for folks who haven't heard, um, she's launched a new private equity firm with a with a former TPG um partner, I think it is, um, 
and uh, and it's consumer and and media focus. And I think it's like totally brilliant. Like like if you're a consumer company, um, why wouldn't you want Kim Kardashian as an investor? Mm. Like in terms of like value add, you know, private equity firms and VC firms love to talk about how much value they they bring their portfolio companies, and and sometimes that's true, and sometimes that's not, and you know, there's a big spectrum. But like, who can bring more value to their company than like Kim Kardashian, consumer company, you know, with a single post on Instagram or whatever, like you've got two million new customers. Like it, it's just um, it's and she's obviously a hyper successful entrepreneur, you know, and, and brand builder in her own right. Um, mm. You know, it makes total sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing how like media has changed the investment landscape as well. You've seen multiple people with podcasts launch, like VC funds, and just have that. The people with the audience can then actually add value to their companies. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, um, no, no one, no one cares about our our audience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. but, uh, <laughs> but um, um, no, but you're right. Um, and so, so I, I mean, I think it's as simple as that. I, I think she's. Um, it can make total sense, and you know, I think um, LPs are, would be lining up. Yeah. Well, it was interesting week in markets as well. I mean, you saw a big collapse in crude. I know coal has been ripping to new highs um, to the delight of Australian fund managers and investors. Um, but it was interesting. There was a huge drop, you know, decisive breaking crude. So it picked 125 WTI. It's now kind of like 68, 70. Um, and gasoline, which is more relevant because that's like directly uh, what consumers pay in the US, you know, that's not quite halved, but down, you know, 35, 40% as well. So that was like the driver of inflation really this year um, that really sent everything off. And so it's interesting to see that reverse right as the hawkish rhetoric is still kind of coming in hard and fast. Um, that that won't be in the numbers this month or the bulk of that fall because it kind of happened in September. So there's an August inflation number that will come out. Um, and this year these have been like intensely watched and have had huge impacts on markets. Um, but we do know if, you know, if, if gasoline stays where it is now, there's a good chance it'll be a pretty soft number next month. So that's kind of interesting when you think about turning points and and what could shake us out of the current, you know, funk in markets. So um, so why has it why has it declined? You know, we've still got embargoes on on, on Russia, um, you know, supply chains are still, you know, struggling. You know, what's going on here? I think there's two things. I think firstly, like firstly the Russian oil made it to market anyway. Um, it just went to China and Russia China and um other countries, India, um, and anybody else who would take it. So it wasn't, yes, if you, similar with, yes, you could add up, you know, the the supply loss and be like, there's a massive deficit. But in reality, um, one way or another, that energy would have made it to market. Um, the other thing is like, the, I think it's oil has always been price sensitive, right? You know, these equities that are ripping, you know, kind of year and a half, but they've also gone nowhere over the last decade for this very reason, you know, price goes up, people like dem- there is demand destruction and there's always, it's been tough because tech investors have had a really tough time of it over the last year. And then the people have done really well have been kind of like the Uber bears um, who generally commodity long biased as well. Um, and they were just positioned perfectly for this entire thing, positioned perfectly for the war, doubled down on those bets. Um, but there's always like a flaw in that argument. Um, and obviously the more sophisticated ones are very aware of this. Um, but you can't be like super bullish oil and super bearish the world and think it's all like, it's it's just one of the, they can't both happen. And I think that's what you're seeing now. It's like they're right on the, or they kind of got lucky with the Ukraine supply shock, shock 
crude shot up and then peaked and has been selling off more or less ever since now. Um, but they're also kind of right in the bear case where things have deteriorated quite markedly all around the world. Um, but that's actually destroying demand. <laughs> so, and, 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 so and, and so, and so just to be explicit about that, to make sure I've understood. So you're, you're saying basically, um, you know, high prices reduce oil demand and kind of bearish um, economic circumstances also reduce uh, demand. And so, oil prices ultimately have to kind of fall. And so and that, that's yeah. why you can't be kind of bearish the world and, and bullish oil over like a medium term. Is that, is that how you think about it? Correct. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess another point was like Epic came out and announced like a cut and the market sold off. There was like a one-day pop and then the market sold off pretty significantly. So that again tells you where things are. Like if – I know there's like kind of data and like a lot of very smart people writing things about how undersupplied crude, like the oil energy market is. Um, but you've got like the leaders of OPEC coming in and organizing a cut and then you've got the price selling off. So that kind of tells you all you need to know. And, you know, I've like obviously made my own mistakes in tech, but you can really, in the sense that you can really learn a lot from price action. Um, and I think that's pretty crystal clear. And so that's hmm. actually pretty, I think that's why equities kind of stabilized this week. Um, I think it's, you really are starting to see the end. So whether it's freight, whether it's time, um, you know, it's almost like, what is it now? It's September and the transitory theme was supposed to roll over like six months ago, which is about when Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, funnily enough, you know, everyone, it'd be interesting if the transitory thing probably will end up happening. Um, it was just delayed six to nine, maybe 12 months by an unforeseen invasion. Like there's a good chance that when people look back on this period, that's what they'll see. And then that's triggered a huge sell-off in tech. And if tech, like I was having a chat with like a very good tech analyst who kind of got gets the long and the shorts right, like um, as in was negative at the right time while also being fundamentally bullish. But he's broadly like, we're discussing about which of these survive. And, you know, I was like, they're all going to survive. All these companies are going to be there. It's not that kind of crisis. You know, even the ones down 85, 90%, you know, some of them are sitting on $4 billion cash piles and they're losing money, but they're cash flow positive. Yeah, how do, what is the mechanism by which that does not exist in three, four, five years' time? Like it's just, and it's growing organically 20, 30%. There's a ton of companies um, in that ballpark. Um, and if that happens, then like this will be one of those years that just caused huge misallocation and losses as people sell out of good companies and and then they move on to greater highs and, and someone will be left holding these things you know, at the lows, which we might've already seen. Um, and from there, you know, the, the next couple of years could be pretty spectacular. Like the bear case now, now that we know that a lot of these companies are still performing, the bear case really is all about rates and tightening. Um, but, you know, that's that's a man-made thing. And at some point in the next two years, there's a good chance, if not in the next, you know, few months, there's a good chance that whole thing's reversed. Um, and then you get people supporting markets and central bankers go the other way. Now it's, it's probably... It's pretty clear that they're going to over-tighten. They, they want to overcorrect. They want to explicitly overcorrect um, to make sure that this inflation thing is is resolved, um, which means it'll be longer than usual. But you know, a lot can change in thirty six months. So I thought that was interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Before no. That, gasoline. That all makes sense. What well, one one stock? I don't know if you have you. I, I haven't run a buy, <laughs> so I'm putting you in the spot here. But one stock I've noticed getting absolutely smashed um, is Twilio. Um, you know, we're kind, of, we're kind of talk about big global um, kind of tech stocks being massively smashed. Why? Why is why is that on the nose? Do you think? 
I think there's a couple of things. I think um, organic growth slowed down, but it's still pretty strong. Um, you're talking in the 25, 30% range. Uh, they've done a series of acquisitions over the last few years, last couple of years. They've done, The company now is different to what it was. Um, and the operating leverage is just not there. So they've been growing, but they're just losing on a dollar value more money than they ever have. And on a percentage basis, you know, they're still pretty serious negative margins. But you've got a company with, you know, billions of dollars of cash. Um, I think maybe 20, 25% of the market cap is now represented by cash. The last result, they lost 320 mil. The way, the way I can think about it is that it's 320 mil of like more or less non-cash losses. It goes to employees. Then that gets... That's like gets ho like that gets put onto the market. If not now, in four years, but you know the stock that was issued several years ago now is being sold. Like employees, um, anecdotally, are just selling stock as soon as it comes available, and they also have tax reasons that they have to do it. So if you're if you step up and buy something like Twilio, a it's losing um, three hundred twenty mil a quarter of economic value one way or another. Um, and B, you're probably buying the stock off like an insider, like an employee. Like, is there three hundred twenty million dollars of demand every three months for a loss-making tech company with no operating leverage um, that is kind of past? Like, growth has slowed down from fifty, sixty percent to twenty, thirty. Like, how did, there's just there's just not that much demand for that kind of thing at the moment. Like, what we'll turn around? I think like I really think like if management, this is one of those founder-led companies where management just doesn't even seem to acknowledge a problem. Like you don't see any urgency in the calls. There's no refocus on margin. Mm. Um, you're just seeing nothing to resemble anything other than business as usual. Um, it's like that, that's my opinion. Um, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but you know that that, that it, to turn around, they'd have to make some pretty aggressive moves. And you're actually seeing it. The companies that come out with big, you know, 20, 30% headcount reductions have generally, the market's taken that pretty well. And it's generally put a floor under things. It's like, right, okay, it's being taken seriously. Um, that's going to reduce the cost base quite markedly, not now, but certainly in six months. Um, and so I think that's I think that's why Twilio has struggled. And then there's also, it's unclear. I mean, stepping back a bit, it's unclear what that whole thing looks like in five years. Um, like they do messaging APIs more or less. Um, and expanding into things like data centers. But it's one thing that the original selling point was you have all these carriers, Twilio has, has struck a deal with all of them. You put in a tiny little bit of Twilio code and all of a sudden you can send um, WhatsApp messaging. You can give notifications. You can do advertising potentially. Um, all you need to do is a little bit of API and Twilio does all that in the back end. But I think that, I think even that value proposition, I think is diminishing A, because so many other people can do it. Um, so there's competition and B, SMS is, and messaging and telcos are just becoming increasingly relevant. Like how relevant a telco is going to be in five years time, you know, that ability to. They've been saying that for 15 years. I, I'm less, I'm less bearish on that part of it. I reckon, um, I, I, I reckon that there's always this back of mind fear of obsolescence here. You know, you, you're kind of sure you're integrated to, to you know this messaging service and and that messaging service, and you're kind of agnostic between um, carriers and and data um, kind of um, messaging providers, but you know like how does it actually persist over to your point of like a five ten year view? Less because of SMS decline and more because um, you know what else kind of comes around and and how how I'll put it this way that space become this way for relevance for them so they'll get char they charge per message. Um, so imagine if you stop using SMS and you just start interacting with all your customers through WhatsApp in a much cheaper, basically free way, you know, yes, you can charge something for that, but not much. Um, 
And so I wonder if that's part of it, but there's other companies as well in the space that have had similar moves. I think it's just been a highly competitive space. You know, it's like, this is like a show me the money kind of moment. You know, it's, it's companies that are generating cash, cash can just buy back stock. You know, it's the ones that are losing money that are just in this spiral that, um, and at the same time have been hit with, you know, declining revenue growth. So again, there's, there's been a clear division now in companies in tech space, the ones that have maintained growth have now started to significantly outperform mm. you know, ones that have slowed down. And these were former darlings, so Square, Shopify, Twilio, including ones that we owned at very t- various times. They're basically at, at their lows. Whereas ones that have maintained growth, um, say Monday, CrowdStrike, um, Snowflake, Bill.com, uh, those kinds of companies are well above their highs now. Um, so there has been, there is method to the madness in the market and it has kind of, there has been, I'd say in the last two months, a big split between the ones that fundamentals are coming through and the ones that aren't, which kind of gives us like a sense of hope. Like there is actually strategy works, you know, the companies that are growing and delivering are, are putting in some pretty serious outperformance. And my guess is actually they'll outperform. It's not like the ones that are the most smashed are going to rebound the hardest either. I think it's actually the ones that got absolutely smashed, but are now still posting blowout results. Um, when there is some level of risk appetite returning to market and we're nowhere near there now. Um, my guess is they're the ones that will perform the best as, as well in that period as well. G- going back to energy, I do find it um, funny, you know, how some calls that seemed obvious six months ago have actually played out exactly as they seemed. You know, I, I sold, I didn't have a big ASX um, portfolio, but I, I sold all, all my all my shares as I kind of took a bearish view over the next six to 12 months as interest rates were kind of going to rise, mm. but I kept, I kept one, I kept Whitehaven. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's performed unbelievably and, and less because, um, you know, I, I, understand, I know it's kind of trading, you know, pretty, pretty attractive um, cash flow and, and earnings multiples, but I just took a view that, um, you know, energy prices is going to go up and institutions are going to be barred from buying coal because you know calls on the nose and, and whatever and it's played exactly as you'd expect where the underlying fundamentals for for the company have been unbelievable and um and it's just um just just improved so um mm. so yeah so i, I and, and you know I, I you know i was just kind of following you know um yeah, that wasn't like a uniquely my um hypothesis um you know that that was a pretty broad-based you i think um outside of kind of esg institutional land and mm. it's played out exactly like that i think even even amongst the smashed up energy producers it's pretty cheap you know it's an eight billion dollar company making four bill of either doubt wow yeah um, it's still attractive like it should still be like two to three x it's kind of it's kind of like value yeah um but i think you just got to yeah i think these are ones you just got to trade technically and they start breaking down you don't want to ride it the whole day, way down like this yeah. is this is going from a dollar to eight dollars to a dollar to eight dollars like so many times yeah <laughs> that's the last enough. few years well, like, um, like, like every commodity like company like every yeah but it's hard to see it's hard to see that changing in the near term you know it's yeah. happening again like well like, there are structural forces i mean you, you can be long energy and um kind of note that institutional money is kept out and so you can expect structurally high mm. cash yield so even though you can't really predict where the price is going to go you can assume that's going to keep divvying out you know pretty pretty high cash yields which is um you know which is potentially still attractive yeah exactly and heavy buybacks and dividends and yeah i think that's another that's another thing we're looking at is we really want companies that are making enough money to buy back shares and there are some there are plenty in the tech space um and there's plenty of companies that are growing 
you know, not necessarily hundred percent, but certainly 30, 40% that are buying back shares to, to draw the analogy with Twilio, you know, it's just night and day in terms of which one will all outperform now, especially with like net liquidity being drawn out of the market, at, you know, 95 billion a month. Um, and you're starting to see equity draws for the first, which has been pretty rare. Like most of the last year you've seen inflows. Um, I saw in the UK for the first time in a very long time, they have net outflows from equities. Um, so if you've got a company that's actually buying back shares, it's much more likely, likely to weather the storm. But you never know. I mean, this is as unanimously bearish as people get. You know, sometimes the selling just ends. <laughs> sure. Oh, you, and with you, the... you could totally see sentiment turning, I reckon, at some, at some point pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, are you still doing private stuff? Uh, we are. We've done kind of two deals in the last, in the last month, actually. And what what do they look like? Are they like you know, VC very early stage? Or, or um, I'm trying to think. Like... One is going to be announced. They're going to announce the papers in a week or two, and they've asked us not to say anything. I'm trying to think if we can talk about the other one. But they were ones ones kind of like a mature software business. Mm-hmm. I'd say relatively mature. You know, you're kind of like, I'd say over 10 mil of ARR. Hmm. Um, another one is uh, a pretty advanced um car technology company <laughs> hmm, okay when that's announced when that deal closes um we can talk about it in detail because those companies are obviously it's not like private information um i won't share anything confidential but can certainly talk about the broad sweeps yeah we should um, I, I don't know i mean we, i hope we looked at the at the software business <laughs> i hope we didn't miss that one so maybe uh... there's other there's other there's institutional investors in it um yeah, yeah. So i'm sure it would have crossed your desk um but yeah, I think like everybody, I think everybody in VC lands is kind of waiting to see how companies go as their as cash kind of drains out. You know, everyone has enough money for a year and a half. Um, but you know, every month more and more people are going to need it. And then it's going to be a case of who can show results and and find investors to support them. Um, yeah, I, I, it feels like VC lands in this awkward spot where they chalked up a few massive wins. They raised a ton of money, they deployed them, and you know, again, nothing's gone wrong because this is how it works. They kind of, you know, they're pretty long dated holds, but there's this kind of awkward pause where, you know, success and failure look very similar where you don't really know if you're mm. winning yet or not. And, um, and, uh, and I, I mean, I was, I was talking to, to, to one big VC, um, you know, in Sydney recently, and they were saying they're very focused on just following on, the wins, you know, like really yeah. supporting their their darlings and putting in a lot of cash that way. And it's very hard for them to, um, you know, find those early stage, um, you know, they, they, they definitely had a slowdown in the, in the funnel in terms of the early stage investments. Yeah, I think that's true. I think everyone's going to focus, make sure that the winners are supported and early stage will always have a place because the returns from that are kind of so irrelevant. Um, but yeah, I still think the end of funnel is quite relevant. Like the fact that public markets are still shut, if that opens, if those floodgates open, but then what with liquidity drawing out, you almost need that to change. I'm talking about the Fed and their like commitment to kind of quantitative tightening and, and raising rates. Like another 75 bips into this market, you just never know. Like there's... I remember there were in the EU in Europe there were once or actually twice I think um, where they did a rate rise and the market was kind of, it was all priced in ready to go and then bang the rate rise came through and everything collapsed yeah all kinds of trouble 
I think now the Fed, like now you've got clear like falling crude, falling commodities, maybe everything except coal, falling freight, um, PMIs dropping. I'd be interesting to see what the the impact is of a seventy five basis point hit um, in the net because that it just changes. It really does change everything. It changes the way you think about real estate, think about cash. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. I guess we'll see. Hopefully, I can buy a home in the next uh, twelve months. <laughs> it's probably like the the equity market though. When 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 it's good to buy, nobody wants to. It's just... Yeah, yeah. It's just, I mean, everything's kind of cor- correlate. Most things, most of these things are correlated in the end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, there's, there's still a ton of money out there. I really don't think VCs have an eye. Uh, in, certainly in Australia, IPO markets just haven't played that big a role for for VCs. Um, although you know, I guess it's a broader sentiment thing. Um, you know, even though they they you know pretend to be totally immune, you know, it does kind of affect broader capital flows. But ultimately, you know, they're basically all sitting on massive buckets of cash. Yeah. Still figuring out ways to to deploy it. So I think that's probably the the main concern. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of they're mostly convertible notes. You know, they're mostly protected yeah. when money goes in. Like the investments we're making, it's all it's all kind of preferred. It's got that capital structure benefit on, um. And that, that, like, once those rounds are done, often those companies are funded for another one and a half, two years from now. Um, so this thing could really play out for a long time. Like, I don't think there's by any means it's going to be a disaster for VC or or tech. I think it's more the public market that public market investors will suffer the most because it's just the swing. We have to mark to mark. Um, our money's not locked up. You know, all the funds, though, funnily enough, you know, most funds have seen inflows in the tech space. Um you know, it's been much much gnarlier environment for public rather than private. Well, one thing we haven't seen yet, which I still think we will see, is um, you know, pr- private company cap table restructuring. You know, because because of that, those preferred instruments um, that were kind of written a year ago, or so none of them have really popped up yet. Um, you know, I guess those companies have tried to, you know, extend their runways and avoid hitting that that wall. But you know, given where valuations are, you know, a lot of the equity basically breaks around where those prep structures um, sit, and so you know, VCs don't want to be holding the whole baby when they thought they were investing in thirty percent of the company or whatever, and you know, having founders and, and employees basically wiped. Um, and, and we haven't really, you know, private markets haven't really caught up, which is one reason. Um, you know, public markets have been relatively more attractive in terms of valuations for investors such as ourselves. You know, yeah, private markets haven't cap, really right? caught out. Yeah, exactly. We've seen companies that are like onto their second, third round of convertibles and it's just complicated and confusing. And yeah. And like obviously at some point you just have to like clear all that, convert it to equity, issue some equity to keep the key people and then go again. There's a lot of companies that seem to be in that. And it's really, I think it's, yeah, quality is just going to make such a huge difference now. Yeah, you know, like the, the top end are just going to continue to get funding and we'll be able to do real rounds. The bottom end are just going to have to stack these convertibles. And you usually find someone that will put money into a business on a highly attractive convertible bond structure with, you know, equity upside that takes advantage of all the money that's been spent pr- previously at the expense of previous investors. So there's a lot of companies, but, but they're kind of like zombie companies because they're not great. They might never be good enough to list or to get a proper exit. Um, that would be a challenging position to be in. And then I guess it comes down to management teams, you know, to either deliver on the strategy or find find the right, correct new strategy um, to do. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. We'll, we'll probably see that. When would it start? Probably six to 12 months? Like well, the 12-month well, convertibles will all come up? 
was, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, we were, yeah, I thought we, yeah, we're six months probably away from seeing stuff, but obviously, um, you know, markets improve or, um, you know, th things can change, but yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be surprised if we don't see any kind of major ones over the next six to 12 months. Yeah. So what, what, what else is that? To, we've, we've spoken about the Queen, energy markets, you know, Europe stuffed over winter. That'll be pretty scary to be over there. We're so lucky here in Australia being energy independent yeah. and uh, far away from and I've got, um, aggressors. I've got a couple of interesting life sciences ones, but I reckon we talk about them next week. Yeah. Why don't we do that? And why, why don't we like life sciences are a bit of a black box for me. Keen to pick your brain on that. Yeah. I'll pick a couple and we can go deep on them. Let's do that. This was really fun. That's good. It was. Thanks, Misha. We'll do it again next week. Speak next week.